What does it really mean to die to ourselves as a Christian? I mean, let's just be honest. That's one of those phrases that if you're not a Christian, sounds really weird. But we're going to look at that today. And we're also going to look at why sound doctrine and even beyond the, quote, essentials of the Christian faith actually makes a difference in people's lives. How do you define a successful life? If your answer can be summarized as earthly excellence and sacred significance, you're at the right place. Join host Stephanie Smith as she shares three keys unlocking a life of lasting purpose. Learn yourself, love God, and live connected. You'll become smarter about yourself, skilled in human dynamics, savvy about the Christian faith, and strengthened to pass this wisdom on to upcoming generations. And now, let's get started. We are continuing to unpack the Gospel of John, and we are still in the 12th chapter. You know, I'm looking at this, and this is this study is taking so much longer than I had anticipated. And I'm thinking, okay, we have got to be out of this, hopefully, by the end of 2024. No, just kidding. We will be out of there long before then. But we are picking up in the Gospel of John, chapter 12, and we are starting in verse 20. And there's a passage here where some Greeks come and they want to see Jesus and they, but they don't come to Jesus directly. They go to Philip because of of where he was from. It's kind of like, well, I think he's going to be kind of open to us. And then Philip goes and then he tells um, um, Andrew and then Andrew and Philip go together to tell Jesus. It's curious to me why Philip doesn't just go tell Jesus. Was it like there's safety in numbers? I'm not sure what kind of a response I'm going to get. So hey, you know what, uh, maybe if Andrew goes with me, then we'll be a little more convincing. Not exactly sure of Philip's motives there, but the two of them go and tell Jesus about this. Now, sometimes if we read scripture, we just have to be honest and say, Jesus sometimes said things and responded to questions in a way that just feels weird. I'm not saying it was weird. I'm just saying it feels weird at face value. There's no response in terms of him saying, absolutely, I'd love to see them. Or, are you kidding me? I'm not messing with Greeks. I came for the Jews. Instead, he talks about grains of wheat falling into the ground and dying. If somebody came to you and said, hey, I have somebody who wants to meet you, and you started talking about gardening and the necessity of planting seeds in the dirt, they would probably kind of start backing away and going, okay, never mind, no problem, Uh, catch you another time. So why does Jesus begin talking about grains of wheat needing to fall into the ground and dying? Because death is what actually brings life. If you have ever driven here in the United States on I-70 through Illinois during the summer, as well as some other Midwestern states, you are going to see corn. You are going to see a lot of corn. You're going to see more corn than you probably even care about, unless you happen to be one of the um, people who are farming that corn. Well, you're going to see stalks and stalks and stalks of corn in those fields. And on every stalk, you're also going to see several corn cobs or ears of corn. I have no idea why they call them ears, but whatever. Do you know that one ear of corn, not one stalk of corn, one ear of corn 
So if you've ever eaten corn on the cob, and I don't know, maybe you've counted all the individual kernels, but if you haven't, one ear of corn produces about 800 kernels. And inside every one of those kernels, there's a seed. Well, you can do the multiplication on that pretty quick. It didn't take an entire kernel. I mean, it didn't take an entire corn cob in order to grow that one stalk. I mean, that would still be quite the ratio, but it's not even that. It takes one kernel, one seed, to produce a stalk, and that stalk to produce several ears of corn, and on each one of those ears of corn, around another 800 or so seeds. Dying is a way for life to become multiplied. Resurrection, which is a form of dying and coming to life again, is not a one-to-one ratio. It's an exponential multiplier. One seed of wheat, which sprouts and comes to produce and comes to maturity, produces more than one or 10 or even 100 other wheat seeds. It produces an exponential number of wheat seeds. And what's true in the realm of plants and creation is also true for us as individuals. When we experience the spiritual death to sin and we are willing to be buried and then we are willing to be raised to new life in Christ, we have an exponential multiplier when that happens. But it's a process that takes time cultivation, planting, weeding, and watering. It takes work, and it's not a process that we just as a seed controls. You know, when a seed is planted, it doesn't say, okay, well, I'm going to start giving instructions as to when you're going to come and water me, and then I'm going to tell you exactly when you need to start weeding, and then I'm going to tell you when you need to come and you know, till up the ground and all of these different things. The seed is in a place of total dependency on the caretakers around it in order to to grow. Now, there is a certain agency within a seed that it will fight for life no matter where it's planted. But if we want to have a, a great harvest, then we have to do the work of taking care of where that seed is planted and the soil around it. One of the measurements of our discipleship is, are we actually having a multiplied impact in our life as time passes? And if not, perhaps it's because we haven't been willing to fall into the ground and, quote, die sufficiently. You know, we're, we're unlike a seed in the sense that we do have the agency and we can kind of keep popping up out of the ground and saying, you know, it's dark down there. I don't see anything happening. It's cold and damp and miserable. I want to see what's going on with all my other fellow seeds. Have they sprouted yet? Where are they? Are they growing in the same rate than I am? Or are they still buried in the ground? You know, we can be kind of seeds kind of like that. And when Jesus talked about the parable of a sower, one of the things he talked about was that the cares of life can come 
and they can choke out the good seed. And he also talked about that the soil can be so shallow that there's an insufficient depth of character for the seed to take root. But Jesus references for himself that he is, he is like a grain of wheat that's getting prepared to go into the ground. He's going to die. But out of that, there is going to be a multiplied impact of new life, not just for him, but for, for others. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Oh, wouldn't that be great on a party invitation? I mean, how would you like to receive that? Come and die at the party. No, not, not, not going to work, not going to go well. Um, could get you arrested, probably, definitely at least investigated. So what does this Christian call mean to die to ourselves? It's one of those phrases that we can toss around as Christians and not really think about, what does that actually really mean? And I think this isn't just some um, little parsing of a phrase that doesn't have any real impact. I think it means something, and that's what I want to dive into it a little bit today. It does not mean that we are to be erased. God calling us to come and die is not the equivalent of God saying, I want to erase you. Come here. I'm going to pull out my big spiritual eraser, and I'm going to, you know, push and pull it back and forth all over you. And when I'm done and you have reached maturity, you will no longer be there. That is not what coming and dying in the true sense means. What it does mean is that we die to the parts of ourselves which pull us away from God. You know, th- this whole life experience of being a Christian, it's not a one-and-done event. Boy, wouldn't that be nice? We could just have one salvation, everything could change, and then we would be free for the rest of our lives to live without any pull to sin. I would per- personally sign up for that plan, but that's not an option that God has given us. It's an ongoing process of being transformed to be more like Christ. Okay, that's another one of those phrases we throw around. We are to become more like Christ. But what do we actually mean by that? Well, I'm not going to dive into what I think all of that means, but I do want to unpack a little bit of that. Jesus was 100% fully himself. He was 100% aligned with his design. He didn't live in in opposition to his design. He lived in total perfect alignment with who he was designed to be. He was fully committed to God's will. He was fully free from sin. You know, some Eastern religions teach that when we reach the height of our development as a human being, we reach enlightenment, we reach these highest states that humanity can reach, that Basically, we just kind of disappear. We're absorbed into the cosmos. Our uniqueness, our personality, all of who we are, were it not for sin, you know, just kind of evaporates. That is not who God is. God is at, is at work trying to get us to be 100% of who we would be were it not for the devastation 
of sin in our lives. Not just the sins that we commit, but the impact of the fallen world that we lived in, that we live in, the impact of having a sinful nature, all of that. Dying to ourselves and becoming like Christ is not about God trying to get us to all look, sound, and act alike. It's not like heaven is going to be filled with a bunch of clones and we're all indistinguishable from one another. The Bible tells us that we will be known in heaven as our own unique individual and who we are. We're not all going to walk around like this giant blob that's all melded together in some way. All of creation and the fact that God has given us different gifts and abilities is evidence he delights in uniqueness. And this is an important understanding because sometimes we can start to devalue the abilities that we have. We, we start to devalue our uniqueness and we start to think that dying to ourselves as a Christian means that I cut off my uniqueness. I get rid of my, my desires, my interests, my abilities. And we want to do that for everything that is fueled by selfishness. But when we are made new in Christ and we are going through this process of becoming like Christ, again, the end goal is to be like Christ in the sense that he was perfectly aligned with who he was. He was perfectly aligned with who God had created him to be. Obviously, he was 100% God and 100% man. None of the rest of us are ever going to be that. So we can only be 100% people, but God still wants us to become 100% who he's designed each of us to be as individuals. So yes, we're called to come and die, but we're not called to come and be erased. Now, after Jesus talks about this and he uses this analogy of being a grain of wheat that's going to fall into the ground and die, he says, now is my soul trouble and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Isn't that astounding? Here he is. He has just talked about knowing that he is called to die, but he acknowledges his soul is troubled. That's a powerful statement for us because sometimes we think that if we have any kind of trouble in our soul, if we have any kind of stress, if we experience any kind of grief or sadness, or there's anything that causes us to be ill at ease, well, that must be wrong. That must be the result of sin. Not at all. Sometimes it is the result of recognizing and experiencing we live in a world that is at war. And I don't mean the wars that are taking place with um, drones and with uh, missiles and all of that. I mean the spiritual war that we are in. And it should rightly trouble us, not to throw us into a panic, but to cause us to say something hard is coming. And isn't it interesting that he says that Jesus asks this question, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Because that is exactly what he does end up saying that we'll read about later in this gospel. 
we see here in this chapter 12 of John the beginnings of what is going to come to fruition in the Garden of Gethsemane. It wasn't like Jesus was just going along without a care in the world, and then poof, one day, all of a sudden, he's arrested there in the garden. No, he knew what was coming, and we see here where it has begun to weigh on him to the point that he openly speaks about it, and he acknowledges his soul is troubled. He knows a spiritual battle is coming. He knows that the human part of him is not going to want to experience what he does because he was, alongside of being 100% God, he was also 100% human. And that human part of him didn't want to experience that pain and that shame. So we see here the very beginnings of him expressing this, this inner turmoil in, in an outward way. And then he makes a statement, and he, he talks about, when I'm lifted up from the earth, that I will draw all people to, to myself. And then the crowd answers him, and they say, uh, we've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. So how can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up. Who is this Son of Man? This is one of the evidences of why we need to have sound doctrine and sound theological teaching, and not just in what we might call those core essentials of Christianity. You see, what people had done here was they had taken something that was in the law that Christ would remain forever but they inappropriately applied the meaning of that and they drew their own conclusions of it and it made them suspicious and drew them away from believing that Jesus really could be the Christ. When we have wrong doctrine and theology, it can absolutely make people suspicious of God being who he says he is, of Jesus being who he said he was, and draw them away from them. And Jesus gives them a word of caution and an instruction. He says, hey, I'm not going to be with you much longer. The light's not going to be here with you much longer. So walk in the light. Listen to me. Come to me while you still have the opportunity. And then he goes away and he hides himself from people. Isn't that astounding? He's days away from his crucifixion. On one hand, you might think he would be trying desperately to round everybody up to give them final words of instruction, but that's not what he does. He goes away and it says he hides himself from the people. And then it goes on to say that even though he had done so many signs, he'd given them all this information they still did not believe in him. You know what? If, if Jesus could restore blind people's sight, which he did, if he could cause leprosy and other skin diseases to just disappear, if he could cause people who had never heard any sound in their life to all of a sudden have perfect hearing, if he could, oh, I don't know, like bring somebody back from the dead, like Lazarus, 
you think that might be enough for people to go, hmm, guess this is the promised Messiah. It's not like we've been seeing this all of our lives. But no, they did not. More people that lived during Jesus' time chose not to believe in him than those that did. Well, what that has to do with you is not just about your belief in Christ, but it's also about the expectation and the desire to have other people believe in and validate you. I mean, we all want that. We all want people to believe in us, to validate us, and to affirm us. If Jesus wasn't everybody's cup of tea, probably not going to, everybody's not going to be your cup of tea, definitely not going to be my cup of tea either. There are people who will never believe in you no matter what you do. That is so important because you can spend months, years, decades of your life trying to win people's approval, their belief, and you're never going to get it. Jesus delivers his message. He speaks his heart. He continues to speak truth, but not from a place of desperately trying to get everybody to come to him before he dies. But then he's also willing to walk away and leave people believing what they've chosen to believe. And there's a powerful lesson for us in that. And sometimes we have to just walk away. We want to stay focused on completing the calling that God has given to us. And sometimes that is going to mean letting people go who choose not to believe in us, regardless of what we've done and how we've lived our lives. And one of the saddest statements, I think, throughout this entire gospel comes in, um, in chapter 12 here in verses uh, 42 and 43. And it says, there were many of the authorities who believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they would not confess it. Why? They did not want to be put out of the synagogue. And then it says, For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Now, I would love to tell you that I have never been guilty of that, but I would be lying if I said that, because there are all different kinds of ways that we can seek man's glory. We can seek other people's approval, their blessing, their affirmation more than that of God. And that's, that's a whole series of podcasts we could dive into, but we're not going to do that for today. But it is a principle to be able to be aware of and to apply in our lives, both to understand that there will be people we will never do enough for, but also to look and to say, do I care more about the affirmation, the approval, the acceptance that comes from other people because of opportunities here on earth I don't want to lose out on? status I don't want to give up, reputation that I don't want to have challenged or trashed by people whose approval that I want? Am I going to be one of those people who can look at Christ, who can look at the evidence for God, who can look at everything that's in the scripture and say, I don't want to be put out of fill in the blank, your school, your workplace, 
your family, a friends group, a social network, whatever it is, that you don't want to lose your position and your place because you care more about what people think than what your own heart tells you is right and true. So we definitely do want, do not want to make the mistakes that these individuals made in that decision. And Jesus wraps up this chapter 12 by again calling out and redirecting everyone to the Father. Again, he does not draw attention to himself and then just stops there. It's always going back to the Father. It's always drawing people back to God, always going back to say, here's my validation. Here's my credentials. Here's where I want to direct your attention because I want you to walk as one with the Father, just like I have done here on earth. And I've set an example for you. All right, my friend, we're wrapped up with the um, chapter 12 in the Gospel of John. Woohoo! We made it through it. If you haven't done so already, there's a, there's a, a new resource on the website, stephanieprisons.com. I want you to go and download. It is a guide with a five-week, um, very doable plan of how to implement these 10 practices that can really transform your life when you are dealing with a weary or an anxious heart. You probably haven't had to go search in weariness for a while. I doubt anybody listening has said, you know what? Life has just been so awesome and so good for so long. I have never experienced what weariness is for so long. I've, I've really forgotten what that is. And anxiousness, I um, no, I'm, I'm really, really quite unfamiliar with that. I really doubt that that has happened because weariness and anxiousness come find everybody sooner or later. But you don't have to be a victim of that. You can be more than an overcomer. And there are practical ways that you can address this in your life. So I've given you not only information, but I've given you a way to be able to actually apply this information in this free resource that's, that's on my website. Um, the, the 10 W's to renewing a heart that's weary and anxious. So check that out. In the meantime, continue to be equipped to engage fully in God's grand story with your unique abilities and opportunities because you have an impact that is immeasurable, eternal, and irreplaceable. See you next time. Thank you for listening. For information on speaking engagements and other resources, visit the website at stephaniepresents.com. Remember, learn yourself, love God, and live connected.